podcast listeners. I've never prayed to you before. I haven't the tongue for it. But I ask you now, listen to the podcast that dares not speak its name with me. Grant me the strength to get through to the end for the Creative Commons license all the way down there. And if you will not listen, then to hell with you, Andre Schaufield. Hey, sorry. Hey, folks, this is Rich Outfield. This is the podcast that dares not speak its name. And we are doing the second half <laughs> of the Scarlet Citadel. I, it's probably not half. It's, it's, it's less than half. I tried to find a good uh, splitting point, or what, what would you call that? A, a good point to call it a night on the first half. And, and it was hard. It's, it's done in chapters, and so, of course, you want to naturally stop at the end of a chapter. I would be really curious to see how it was presented in Weird Tales. Because this is long, you know? I just finished editing my novella, but now I'm found today. And just for the heck of it, I pasted all of the files, the, the, the finished MP3s, into my media player uh, to look to see how long it was. And it was two hours and 33 minutes, two hours and 34 minutes, something like that. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I mean, all this work that I've done only comes to two hours and 34 minutes. But is that too long? De I mean, it's definitely too short for a novel, obviously, right? It, it just made me think. I now have four... Will Choner's stories that I've written. That one was the third one and the longest one. And I just thought about, well, maybe I could put all four together in like a little collection and it would come to, what, four hours? Something like that. That's okay, isn't it? Four hours? Uh, but for example, the audiobook that I have from the library is a Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan book from 2000. And guess how many discs it is. Just guess. Wow, actually, you were very close. 35 discs. And it takes me about two days, sometimes three days, to listen to a disc. So think of the time investiture that that will require for me to, to, to listen to the whole book. You could only listen to three of those in a year, you know? And so I, I am always uh, aware of how much time things are taking. And I, I wonder, you know, is this overwritten? In, but now I'm Found's case, is it underwritten? You know, could I have made a novel out of that? And here we are uh, with the second half of Scarlet Citadel. Could it have been shorter? Definitely. But could it have been longer? I mean, imagine if Brandon Sanderson got his filthy hands on something like this. Sorry his disgusting alien hands on something like this. So I, I hadn't brought him up in a while, so I thought uh, it was time. Anyway, I hope that you enjoy the rest of The Scarlet Citadel by Robert E. Howard. And I, I would like to think that he would have liked my performance of it. There was radio in those days, and they would do fiction on radio, and I'm aware that they would sometimes just do readings. It didn't have to be radio drama. And so he might have really enjoyed a two-hour performance of The Scarlet Citadel. 
We will never know. I will see you on the other side. Buckle up. The Scarlet Citadel by Robert E. Howard. Narrated by Rish Outfield. With a swirling rush, like the sweep of a strong wind, the great snake was gone. What did he see to frighten him? asked Conan, eyeing his companion uneasily. The scaled people see what escapes the mortal eye answered Peleus cryptically. You see my fleshly guise. He saw my naked soul. An icy trickle disturbed Conan's spine, and he wondered if, after all, Peleus were a man, or merely another demon of the pits in a mask of humanity. He contemplated the advisability of driving his sword through his companion's back without further hesitation, but while he pondered, they came to the steel grill etched blackly in the torches beyond, and the body of Shukeli still slumped against the bars in a curdled welter of crimson. Peleus laughed, and his laugh was not pleasant to hear. By the ivory hips of Ishtar, who is our doorman? <laughs> Lo, it is no less than the noble Shukeli who hanged my young men by their feet and skinned them with squeals of laughter. Do you sleep, Shukeli? Why do you lie so stiffly, with your fat belly sunk in like a dressed pig's? <laughs> he is dead, muttered Conan, ill at ease to hear these wild words. Dead or alive, laughed Peleus, he shall open the door for us. He clapped his hands sharply and cried, Rise, Shukeli, rise from hell and rise from the bloody floor and open the door for your masters. Rise, I say. An awful groan reverberated through the vaults. Conan's hair stood on end and he felt clammy sweat bead his hide. For the body of Shukeli stirred and moved with infantile gropings of the fat hands. The laughter of Peleus was merciless as a flint hatchet, as the form of the eunuch reeled upright, clutching at the bars of the grill. Conan, glaring at him, felt his blood turn to ice and the marrow of his bones to water, for Shukeli's wide-open eyes were glassy and empty and from the great gash in his belly his entrails hung limply to the floor. The eunuch's feet stumbled among his entrails as he worked the bolt, moving like a brainless automaton. When he had first stirred, Conan had thought that by some incredible chance the eunuch was alive. But the man was dead, had been dead for hours. Peleus sauntered through the opened grill, and Conan crowded through behind him, sweat pouring from his body, shrinking away from the awful shape that slumped on sagging legs against the grate it held open. Peleus passed on without a backward glance, and Conan followed him in the grip of nightmare and nausea. He had not taken half a dozen strides when a sodden thud brought him round. Shukeli's corpse lay limply at the foot of the grill. 
His task is done, and hell gapes for him again, remarked Peleus pleasantly, politely affecting not to notice the strong shudder which shook Conan's mighty frame. He led the way up the long stairs and through the brass skull-crowned door at the top. Conan gripped his sword, expecting a rush of slaves, but silence gripped the citadel. They passed through the black corridor and came into that which the censers swung, billowing forth their everlasting incense. Still, they saw no one. The slaves and soldiers are quartered in another part of the citadel, remarked Peleus. Tonight, their master being away, they doubtless lie drunk on wine or lotus juice. Conan glanced through an arched, golden-silled window that led out upon a broad balcony and swore in surprise to see the dark blue star-flecked sky. It had been shortly after sunrise when he was thrown into the pits. Now it was past midnight. He could scarcely realize he had been so long underground. He was suddenly aware of thirst and a ravenous appetite. Peleus led the way into a gold-domed chamber, floored with silver, its lapis lazuli walls pierced by the fretted arches of many doors. With a sigh, Peleus sank onto a silken divan. Gold and silks again, he sighed. Sotha affects to be above the pleasures of the flesh, but he is half-devil. I am human despite my black arts. I love ease and good cheer. That's how Tsotha trapped me. He caught me helpless with drink. <laughs> Wine is a curse. By the ivory bosom of Ishtar, <laughs> even as I speak of it, the traitor is here. Friend, please pour me a goblet. Hold, I, I, I forgot that you are a king. I will pour. The devil with that growled Conan, filling a crystal goblet and proffering it to Peleus. Then, lifting the jug, he drank deeply from the mouth, echoing Peleus's sigh of satisfaction. Yes, the dog knows good wine, said Conan, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand. But by Kram, Peleus, are we to sit here until his soldiers awake and cut our throats? No fear, answered Peleus. Would you like to see how fortune holds with Strabonus? Blue fire burned in Conan's eyes, and he gripped his sword until his knuckles showed blue. Oh, to be at sword points with him, he rumbled. Peleus lifted a great shimmering globe from an ebony table. Sotha's crystal, a childish toy, but useful when there is a lack of time for higher science. Look in, your majesty. He laid it on the table before Conan's eyes. The king looked into cloudy depths, which deepened and expanded. Slowly images crystallized out of mist and shadows. He was looking on a familiar landscape. Broad plains ran to a wide, winding river, beyond which the level lands ran up quickly into a maze of low hills. On the northern bank of the river stood a walled town guarded by a moat connected in each end with the river. By Kram, ejaculated Conan. It's Shamar. The dogs besiege it. The invaders had crossed the river. Their pavilions stood in the narrow plain between the city and the hills. 
Their warriors swarmed about the walls, their mail gleaming palely under the moon. Arrows and stones rained on them from the towers, and they staggered back, but came on again. Even as Conan cursed, the scene changed. Tall spires and gleaming domes stood up in the mist. And he looked on his own capital of Tamar, where all was confusion. He saw the steel-clad knights of Poitain, his staunchest supporters, riding out of the gate, hooted and hissed by the multitude which swarmed the streets. He saw looting and rioting, and men-at-arms whose shields bore the insignia of Pelia, manning the towers and swaggering through the markets. Overall, like a phantasmal mirage, he saw the dark, triumphant face of Prince Arpello of Pelia. The images faded. So, raved Conan, my people turn on me the moment my back is turned. Not entirely, broke in Pelias. They have heard that you are dead. There is no one to protect them from outer enemies and civil war, they think. Naturally, they turn to the strongest noble to avoid the horrors of anarchy. They do not trust the Poitanians, remembering former wars, but Arpello is on hand and the strongest prince of the central provinces. When I come to Aquilonia again, he will be but a headless corpse rotting on traitor's common. Conan ground his teeth. Yet before you can reach your capital, reminded Pelias, Strabonus may be before you. At least his riders will be ravaging your kingdom. True. Conan paced the chamber like a caged lion. With the fastest horse, I could not reach Shamar before midday. Even there, I could do no good, except to die with the people. When the town falls, as fall it will in a few days at most. From Shamar to Tamar is five days' ride, even if you kill your horses on the road. Before I could reach my capital and raise an army, Strabonus would be hammering at the gates, because raising an army is going to be hell. All my damnable nobles will have scattered to their own cursed fiefs at the word of my death. And since the people have driven out Trocero of Poitain, there's none to keep our Pelo's greedy hands off the crown. And the crown treasure, he'll hand the country over to Strabonus in return for a mock throne. And as soon as Strabonus's back is turned, he'll stir up revolt. But the nobles won't support him, and it will only give Strabonus excuse for annexing the kingdom openly. O Kram, Emir, and Set, if I but had wings to fly like lightning to Tamar. Peleus, who sat tapping the jade tabletop with his fingernails, halted suddenly and rose as with a definite purpose, beckoning Conan to follow. The king complied, sunk in moody thoughts, and Peleus led the way out of the chamber and up a flight of marble, gold-worked stairs that let out on the pinnacle of the citadel the roof of the tallest tower. It was night and a strong wind was blowing through the star-filled skies, stirring Conan's black mane. Far below them twinkled the lights of Korshemish, seemingly farther away than the stars above them. Peleus seemed withdrawn and aloof here, one in cold, unhuman greatness with the company of the stars. "'There are creatures,' said Peleus, 
not alone of earth and sea, but of air and the far reaches of the skies as well, dwelling apart, unguessed of men. Yet to him who holds the master words and signs and the knowledge underlying all, they are not malignant nor inaccessible. Watch and fear not. He lifted his hands to the skies and sounded a long, weird call that seemed to shudder endlessly out into space, dwindling and fading, yet never dying out, only receding farther and farther into some unreckoned cosmos. In the silence that followed, Conan heard a sudden beat of wings in the stars and recoiled as a huge bat-like creature alighted beside him. He saw its great calm eyes regarding him in the starlight. He saw the forty-foot spread of its giant wings, and he saw it was neither bat nor bird. Mount and ride, said Peleus. By dawn it will bring you to Tamar. By Krom, muttered Conan. Is this all a nightmare from which I shall presently awaken in my palace at Tamar? What of you? I would not leave you alone among your enemies. Be at ease regarding me, answered Peleus. At dawn the people of Korshemish will know they have a new master. Doubt not what the gods have sent you. I will meet you in the plain by Shamar. Doubtfully, Conan clambered upon the ridged back, gripping the arched neck, still convinced that he was in the grasp of a fantastic nightmare. With a great rush and thunder of titan wings, the creature took the air, and the king grew dizzy as he saw the lights of the city dwindle far below him. Four. The sword that slays the king cuts the cord of the empire. Aquilonian Proverb The streets of Tamar swarmed with howling mobs, shaking fists and rusty pikes. It was the hour before dawn of the second day after the Battle of Shamu, and the events had occurred so swiftly as to daze the mind by means known only to Sothalanti, word had reached Tamar of the king's death. Within half a dozen hours after the battle, chaos had resulted. The barons had deserted the royal capital, galloping away to secure their castles against marauding neighbors. The well-knit kingdom Conan had built up seemed tottering on the edge of dissolution, and commoners and merchants trembled at the imminence of a return of the feudalistic regime. The people howled for a king to protect them against their own aristocracy, no less than foreign foes. Count Trocero, left by Conan in charge of the city, tried to reassure them, but in their unreasoning terror they remembered old civil wars and how this same count had besieged Tamar fifteen years before. It was shouted in the streets that Trocero had betrayed the king, that he planned to plunder the city. The mercenaries began looting the quarters, dragging forth screaming merchants and terrified women. Trocero swept down on the looters, littered the streets with their corpses, drove them back into their quarter in confusion, and arrested their leaders. 
Still, the people rushed wildly about, with brainless squawks, screaming that the Count had incited the riot for his own purposes. Prince Arpello came before the distracted council and announced himself ready to take over the government of the city until a new king could be decided upon, Conan having no son. While they debated, his agents stole subtly among the people, who snatched at a shred of royalty. The council heard the storm outside the palace windows, where the multitude roared for Arpello the Rescuer. The council surrendered. Trocero at first refused the order to give up his baton of authority, but the people swarmed about him, hissing and howling, hurling stones and offal at his knights. Seeing the futility of a pitched battle in the streets with Arpello's retainers under such conditions, Trocero hurled the baton in his rival's face, hanged the leaders of the mercenaries in the market square as his last official act, and rode out of the southern gate at the head of his fifteen hundred steel-clad knights. The gates slammed behind him, and Arpello's suave mask fell away to reveal the grim visage of the hungry wolf. With the mercenaries cut to pieces, or hiding in their barracks, his were the only soldiers in Tamar. Sitting his war-horse in the great square, Arpello proclaimed himself King of Aquilonia amid the clamor of the deluded multitude. Publius, the chancellor, who opposed this move, was thrown into prison. The merchants, who had greeted the proclamation of a king with relief, now found with consternation that the new monarch's first act was to levy a staggering tax on them. Six rich merchants, sent as a delegation of protest, were seized and their heads slashed off without ceremony. A shocked and stunned silence followed this execution. The merchants, confronted by a power they could not control with money, fell on their fat bellies and licked their oppressor's boots. The common people were not perturbed at the fate of the merchants, but they began to murmur when they found that the swaggering Pelian soldiery, pretending to maintain order, were as bad as Turanian bandits. Complaints of extortion, murder, and rape poured in to Arpello, who had taken up his quarters in Publius's palace, because the desperate counselors doomed by his order were holding the royal palace against his soldiers. He had taken possession of the pleasure palace, however, and Conan's girls were dragged to his quarters. The people muttered at the sight of the royal beauties writhing in the brutal hands of the iron-clad retainers, dark-eyed damsels of Poitain, slim, black-haired wenches from Zamora, Zingara, and Hyrcania, Brythunian girls with tousled yellow heads, all weeping with fright and shame, unused to brutality. Night fell on a city of bewilderment and turmoil, and before midnight word spread mysteriously in the street that the Kothians had followed up their victory and were hammering at the walls of Shamar. Somebody in Sotha's mysterious secret service had babbled. Fear shook the people like an earthquake, and they did not even pause to wonder at the witchcraft by which the news had been so swiftly transmitted. They stormed at Arpello's doors, demanding that he march southward and drive the enemy back over the Tibor. He might have subtly pointed out that his force was not sufficient, and that he could not raise an army until the barons recognized his claim to the crown. But he was drunk with power, and laughed in their faces. A young student, Athamedes, 
mounted a column in the market, and with burning words accused Arpello of being a cat's paw for Strabonus, painting a vivid picture of existence under Cothian rule with Arpello as satrap. Before he finished, the multitude was screaming with fear and howling with rage. Arpello sent his soldiers to arrest the youth, but the people caught him up and fled with him, deluging the pursuing retainers with stones and dead cats. A volley of crossbow quarrels routed the mob, and a charge of horsemen littered the market with bodies. But Athamedes was smuggled out of the city to plead with Trocero to retake Tamar, and to march to aid Shamar. Athamedes found Trocero breaking his camp outside the walls, ready to march to Poitain in the fat southwestern corner of the kingdom. To the youth's urgent pleas, he angered that he had neither the force necessary to storm Tamar, even with the aid of the mob inside, nor to face Strabonus. Besides, avaricious nobles would plunder Poitain behind his back while he was fighting the Cothians. With the king dead, each man must protect his own. He was riding to Poitain, there to defend it as best he might against Arpello and his foreign allies. While Athamedes pleaded with Trocero, the mob still raved in the city with helpless fury. Under the great tower beside the royal palace, the people swirled and milled, screaming their hate at Arpello, who stood on the turrets and laughed down at them while his archers ranged the parapets, bolts drawn and fingers on the triggers of their arbalests. The prince of Pelia was a broad-built man of medium height with a dark, stern face. He was an intriguer, but he was also a fighter. Under his silken jupon, with its gilt-braided skirts and jagged sleeves, glimmered burnished steel. His long black hair was curled and scented, and bound back with a cloth of silver band. But at his hip hung a broadsword, the jeweled hilt of which was worn with battles and campaigns. Fools, howl as you will. Conan is dead, and Arpello is king. What if all Aquilonia were leagued against him? He had men enough to hold the mighty walls until Strabonus came up. But Aquilonia was divided against itself. Already the barons were girding themselves each to seize his neighbor's treasure. Arpello had only the helpless mob to deal with. Strabonus would carve through the loose lines of the warring barons as a galley ram through foam, and until his coming, Arpello had only to hold the royal capital. Fools! Arpello is king! The sun was rising over the eastern towers. Out of the crimson dawn came a flying speck that grew to a bat, then to an eagle. Then all who saw screamed in amazement, for over the walls of Tamar swooped a shape such as men knew only in half-forgotten legends, and from between its titan wings sprang a human form as it roared over the great tower. Then, with a deafening thunder of wings, it was gone, and the folk blinked, wondering if they dreamed. But on the turret stood a wild, barbaric figure, half-naked, blood-stained, brandishing a great sword. And from the multitude rose a roar that rocked the towers. The king! It is the king! Arpello stood transfixed. Then, with a cry, he drew and leaped at Conan. With a lion-like roar, the Cimmerian parried the whistling blade, then dropped his own sword, grabbed the prince, and heaved him high above his head by crotch and neck. "'Take your plots to hell with you!' he roared, and like a sack of salt, 
he hurled the Prince of Pelia far out to fall through empty space for a hundred and fifty feet. The people gave back as the body came hurtling down to smash on the marble pave, splattering blood and brains and lie crushed in its splintered armor like a mangled beetle. The archers on the tower shrank back, their nerve broken. They fled, and the beleaguered councilmen sallied from the palace and hewed into them with joyous abandon. Pelian knights and men-at-arms sought safety in the streets, and the crowd tore them to pieces. In the streets, the fighting milled and eddied, plumed helmets and steel caps tossed among the tousled heads and then vanished. Swords hacked madly in a heaving forest of pikes, and over all rose the roar of the mob, shouts of acclaim mingling with screams of bloodlust and howls of agony. And high above all, the naked figure of the king rocked and swayed on the dizzy battlements, mighty arms brandished, roaring with gargantuan laughter that mocked all mobs and princes, even himself. Five. A long bow and a strong bow, and let the sky grow dark. A cord to the knock, the shaft to the ear, and the king of cough for a mark. Song of the Bosonian Archers The mid-afternoon sun glinted on the placid waters of the Tibor, washing the southern bastions of Shamar. The haggard defenders knew that few of them would see that sun rise again. The pavilions of the besiegers dotted the plain. The people of Shamar had not been able successfully to dispute the crossing of the river, outnumbered as they were. Barges, chained together, made a bridge over which the invader poured his hordes. Strabonus had not dared march on into Aquilonia with Shamar unsubdued at his back, he had sent his light riders, his spahis, inland to ravage the country, and had reared up his siege engines in the plain. He had anchored a flotilla of boats, furnished him by a malrus, in the middle of the stream, over against the river wall. Some of these boats had been sunk by stones from the city's ballistas, which crashed through their decks and ripped out their planking, but the rest held their places, and from their bows and mastheads, protected by mantlets, archers raked the riverward turrets. These were Shemites, born with bows in their hands, not to be matched by Aquilonian archers. On the landward side, mangonels rained boulders and tree trunks among the defenders, shattering through roofs and crushing humans like beetles. Rams pounded incessantly at the stones. Sappers burrowed like moles in the earth, sinking their mines beneath the towers. The moat had been dammed at the upper end and emptied of its water, had been filled up with boulders, earth, and dead horses and men. Under the walls the mailed figures swarmed, battering at the gates, rearing up scaling ladders, pushing storming towers, thronged with spearmen against the turrets. Hope had been abandoned in the city, where a bare fifteen hundred men resisted forty thousand warriors. No word had come from the kingdom whose outpost the city was. Conan was dead, so the invaders shouted exultantly. Only the strong walls and the desperate courage of the defenders had kept them so long at bay, and that could not suffice forever. The western wall was a mass of rubbish, on which the defenders stumbled in hand-to-hand -hand conflict with the invaders. The other walls were buckling from the mines beneath them, the towers leaning drunkenly. 
Now the attackers were massing for a storm. The oliphant sounded. The steel-clad ranks drew up on the plain. The storming towers, covered with raw bullhides, rumbled forward. The people of Shamar saw the banners of Koth and Ophir flying side by side in the center and made out, among their gleaming knights, the slim, lethal figure of the golden-mailed Amalrus and the squat, black-armored form of Strabonis. And between them was a shape that made the bravest blanch with horror, a lean vulture figure in a filmy robe. The pikemen moved forward, flowing over the ground like the glinting waves of a river of molten steel. The knights cantered forward, lances lifted, guidance streaming. The warriors on the walls drew a long breath, consigned their souls to Mitra, and gripped their notched and red-stained weapons. Then, without warning, a bugle call cut the din. A drum of hoofs rose above the rumble of the approaching host. North of the plain across which the army moved rose ranges of low hills mounting northward and westward like giant stair steps. Now down out of these hills, like spume blown before a storm, shot the Spahis, who had been laying waste the countryside, riding low and spurring hard, and behind them sun shimmered on moving ranks of steel. They moved into full view, out of the defiles, mailed horsemen, the great lion banner of Aquilonia floating over them. From the electrified watchers on the towers, a great shout rent the skies. In ecstasy, warriors clashed their notched swords on their riven shields, and the people of the town, ragged beggars and rich merchants, harlots in red kirtles and dames in silk and satins, fell to their knees and cried out for joy to Mitra tears of gratitude streaming down their faces. Strabonus, frantically shouting orders with Arbanus that would wheel around the ponderous lines to meet this unexpected menace, grunted, We still outnumber them, unless they have reserves hidden in the hills. The men on the battle towers can mask any sorties from the city. These are Poitanians. We might have guessed Trocero would try some such mad gallantry. Amalrus cried out in unbelief. I see Trocero and his captain Prospero, but who rides between them? Ishtar preserve us, shrieked Strabonus, paling. It is King Conan. You are mad, squalled Sotha, starting convulsively. Conan has been in Sartha's belly for days. He stopped short glaring wildly at the host, which was dropping down, file by file, into the plain. He could not mistake the giant figure in black, gilt-worked armor on the great black stallion, riding beneath the billowing silken folds of the great banner. A scream of feline fury burst from Sotha's lips, flecking his beard with foam. For the first time in his life, Strobonus saw the wizard completely upset, and shrank from the sight. Here is sorcery, screamed Sotha, clawing madly at his beard. How could he have escaped and reached his kingdom in time to return with an army so quickly? This is the work of Peleus. Curse him. I feel his hand in mine. May I be cursed for not killing him when I had the power. The kings gaped at the mention of a man they believed ten years dead, and panic emanating from the leaders, shook the host. All recognized the rider on the black stallion. 
Sotha felt the superstitious dread of his men, and Fury made a hellish mask of his face. Strike home, he screamed, brandishing his lean arms madly. We are still the stronger. Charge and crush these dogs. We shall yet feast in the ruins of Shamar tonight. Oh, set! He lifted his hands and invoked the serpent god to even Strabonus's horror. Grant us victory, and I swear I will offer up to thee five hundred virgins of Samar, writhing in their blood. Meanwhile, the opposing host had debouched onto the plain. With the knights came what seemed a second irregular army on tough, swift ponies. These dismounted and formed their ranks on foot, stolid Bolsonian archers and keen pikemen from Gunderland, their tawny locks blowing from under their steel caps. It was a motley army Conan had assembled in the wild hours following his return to the capital. He had beaten the frothing mob away from the Pelian soldiers who held the outer walls of Tamar and impressed them into his service. He had sent a swift rider after Trocero to bring him back, with these as a nucleus of an army, he had raced southward, sweeping the countryside for recruits and for mounts. Nobles of Tamar and the surrounding countryside had augmented his forces, and he had levied recruits from every village and castle along his road. Yet it was but a paltry force he had gathered to dash against the invading hosts, though of the quality of tempered steel. Nineteen hundred armored horsemen followed him, the main bulk of which consisted of the Poitanian knights, the remnants of the mercenaries and professional soldiers in the trains of loyal noblemen made up his infantry, five thousand archers and four thousand pikemen. This host now came on in good order, first the archers, then the pikemen, behind them the knights, moving at a walk. Over against them, Arbanus ordered his lines, and the allied army moved forward like a shimmering ocean of steel. The watchers on the city walls shook to see that vast host, which overshadowed the powers of the rescuers. First marched the Shemitish archers, then the Kothian spearmen, then the mailed knights of Strabonus and Amalrus. Arbanus's intent was obvious, to employ his footmen to sweep away the infantry of Conan and open the way for an overpowering charge of his heavy cavalry. The Shemites opened fire at five hundred yards, and arrows flew like hail between the hosts, darkening the sun. The western archers, trained by a thousand years of merciless warfare with the Pictish savages, came stolidly on, closing their ranks as their comrades fell. They were far outnumbered, and the Shemitish bow had the longer range. But in accuracy, the Bosonians were equal to their foes, and they balanced sheer skill in archery by superiority in morale and in excellency of armor. Within good range they loosed, and the Shemites went down by whole ranks. The blue-bearded warriors in their light mail shirts could not endure punishment as could the heavier armored Bosonians. They broke throwing away their bows, and their flight disordered the ranks of the Kothian spearmen behind them. Without the support of the archers, these men-at-arms fell by the hundreds before the shafts of the Bosonians, and charging madly in to close quarters, they were met by the spears of the pikemen. No infantry was a match for the wild gundermen, whose homeland, the northernmost province of Aquilonia, was but a day's ride across the Bosonian marches from the borders of Cimmeria, and who— 
born and bred to battle, were the purest blood of all the Hyborian peoples. The Kothian spearmen, dazed by their losses from arrows, were cut to pieces and fell back in disorder. Strabonus roared in fury as he saw his infantry repulsed and shouted for a general charge. Arbanus demurred, pointing out the Bosonians reforming in good order before the Aquilonian knights who had sat their steeds motionless during the melee. The general advised a temporary retirement to draw the western knights out of the cover of the bows. But Strabonus was mad with rage. He looked at the long, shimmering ranks of his knights. He glared at the handful of mailed figures over against him, and he commanded Arbanus to give the order to charge. The general commended his soul to Ishtar and sounded the golden oliphant. With a thunderous roar, the forest of lances dipped, and the great host rolled across the plain, gaining momentum as it came. The whole plain shook to the rumbling avalanche of hoofs, and the shimmer of gold and steel dazzled the watchers on the towers of Shamar. The squadrons clave the loose ranks of the spearmen, riding down friend and foe alike, and rushed into the teeth of a blast of arrows from the Bosonians. Across the plain they thundered, grimly riding the storm that scattered their way with gleaming nights like autumn leaves. Another hundred paces, and they would ride among the Bosonians and cut them down like corn. But flesh and blood could not endure the rain of death that now ripped and howled among them. Shoulder to shoulder, feet braced wide, stood the archers, drawing shaft to ear and loosing as one man with deep, short shouts. The whole front rank of the knights melted away, and over the pin-cushioned corpses of horses and riders, their comrades stumbled and fell headlong. Arbanus was down, an arrow through his throat, his skull smashed by the hoofs of his dying war-horse, and confusion ran through the disordered host. Strabonus was screaming an order, Amalrus another, and through all ran the superstitious dread the sight of Conan had awakened. And while the gleaming ranks milled in confusion, the trumpets of Conan sounded, and through the opening ranks of the archers crashed the terrible charge of the Aquilonian knights. The hosts met with a shock like that of an earthquake that shook the tottering towers of Shamar. The disorganized squadrons of the invaders could not withstand the solid steel wedge, bristling with spears that rushed like a thunderbolt against them. The long lances of the attackers ripped their ranks to pieces, and into the heart of their host rode the knights of Poitain, swinging their terrible two-handed swords. The clash and clangor of steel was as that of a million sledges on as many anvils. The watchers on the walls were stunned and deafened by the thunder as they gripped the battlements and watched the steel maelstrom swirl and eddy where plumes tossed high among the flashing swords and standards dipped and reeled. Amalrus went down, dying beneath the trampling hoofs, his shoulder-bone hewn in twain by Prospero's two-handed sword. The invaders' numbers had engulfed the nineteen hundred knights of Conan, but about this compact wedge, which hewed deeper and deeper into the looser formation of their foes, the knights of Koth and Ophir swirled and smote in vain. They could not break the wedge. 
archers and pikemen, having disposed of the Kothian infantry, which was strewn in flight across the plain, came to the edges of the fight, loosing their arrows point-blank, running in to slash at girths and horses' bellies with their knives, thrusting upward to spit the riders on their long pikes. At the tip of the steel wedge, Conan roared his heathen battle cry and swung his great sword in glittering arcs that made not of steel burgonet or male habergeon. Straight through a thundering waste of foes he rode, and the knights of Koth closed in behind him, cutting him off from his warriors. As a thunderbolt strikes, Conan struck, hurtling through the ranks by sheer power and velocity, until he came to Strabonus, livid among his palace troops. Now here the battle hung in balance, for with his superior numbers, Strabonus still had opportunity to pluck victory from the knees of the gods. But he screamed when he saw his arch-foe within arm's length at last, and lashed out wildly with his axe. It clanged on Conan's helmet, striking fire, and the Cimmerian reeled and struck back. The five-foot blade crushed Strabonus's cask and skull, and the king's charger reared, screaming, hurling a limp and sprawling corpse from the saddle. A great cry went up from the host, which faltered and gave back. Trocero and his house troops, hewing desperately, cut their way to Conan's side, and the great banner of Koth went down. Then behind the dazed and stricken invaders went up a mighty clamor and the blaze of a huge conflagration. The defenders of Shamar had made a desperate sortie, cut down the men masking the gates, and were raging among the tents of the besiegers, cutting down the camp followers, burning the pavilions, and destroying the siege engines. It was the last straw. The gleaming army melted away in flight, and the furious conquerors cut them down as they ran. The fugitives raced for the river, but the men on the flotilla, harried sorely by the stones and shafts of the revived citizens, cast loose and pulled for the southern shore, leaving their comrades to their fate. Of these, many gained the shore, racing across the barges that served as a bridge, until the men of Shamar cut these adrift and severed them from the shore. Then the fight became a slaughter, driven into the river to drown in their armor or hacked down along the bank, the invaders perished by the thousands. No quarter they had promised, no quarter they got. From the foot of the low hills to the shores of the Tibor, the plain was littered with corpses, and the river whose tide ran red floated thick with the dead. Of the nineteen hundred knights who had ridden south with Conan, scarcely five hundred lived to boast of their scars, and the slaughter among the archers and pikemen was ghastly. But the great and shining host of Strabonus and Almalrus was hacked out of existence, and those that fled were less than those that died. While the slaughter yet went on along the river, the final act of a grim drama was being played out in the meadowland beyond. Among those who had crossed the barge bridge before it was destroyed was Sotha, riding like the wind on a gaunt, weird-looking steed whose stride no natural horse could match. Ruthlessly riding down friend and foe, he gained the southern bank, and then a glance backward showed him a grim figure on a great black stallion in pursuit. The lashings had already been cut, and the barges were drifting apart, but Conan came recklessly on, leaping his steed from boat to boat as a man might leap from one cake of floating ice to another. 
Sotha screamed a curse, but the great stallion took the last leap with a straining groan and gained the southern bank. Then the wizard fled away into the empty meadowland, and on his trail came the king, riding hard, swinging the great sword that spattered his trail with crimson drops. On they fled, the hunted and the hunter, and not a foot could the black stallion gain, though he strained each nerve and thew. Through a sunset land of dim and elusive shadows they fled, till sight and sound of the slaughter died out behind them. Then, in the sky, appeared a dot that grew into a huge eagle as it approached. Swooping down from the sky, it drove at the head of Sotha's steed, which screamed and reared, throwing its rider. Old Sotha rose and faced his pursuer, his eyes those of a maddened serpent, his face an inhuman mask. In each hand he held something that shimmered, and Conan knew he held death there. The king dismounted and strode toward his foe, his armor clanking, his great sword gripped high. "'Again we meet, wizard!' he grinned savagely. "'Keep off!' screamed Sotha like a blood-mad jackal. "'I'll blast the flesh from your bones! You cannot conquer me! If you hack me in pieces, the bits of flesh and bone will reunite and haunt you to your doom! I see the hand of Peleus in this, but I defy ye both! I am Sotha, son of—' Conan rushed, sword gleaming, eyes slits of wariness. Sotha's right hand came back and forward, and the king ducked quickly. Something passed by his helmeted head and exploded behind him, searing the very sands with a flash of hellish fire. Before Sotha could toss the globe in his left hand, Conan's sword sheared through his lean neck. The wizard's head shot from his shoulders on an arching fount of blood, and the robed figure staggered and crumpled drunkenly. Yet the mad black eyes glared up at Conan with no dimming of their feral light. The lips writhed awfully, and the hands groped as if searching for the severed head. Then, with a swift rush of wings, something swooped from the sky, the eagle which had attacked Sotha's horse. In its mighty talons it snatched up the dripping head and soared skyward, and Conan stood, struck dumb, for from the eagle's throat boomed human laughter in the voice of Peleus, the sorcerer. Then a hideous thing came to pass, for the headless body reared up from the sand and staggered away in awful flight on stiffening legs, hands blindly outstretched toward the dot, speeding and dwindling in the dusty sky. Conan stood like one turned to stone, watching until the swift reeling figure faded in the dusk that purpled the meadows. Kram! His mighty shoulders twitched. A murrain on these wizardly feuds. Peleus has dealt well with me, but I care not if I see him no more. Give me a clean sword and a clean foe to flesh it in. Damnation! What I would not give for a flagon of wine. The End Well, there you go. That was the end of The Scarlet Citadel, 1933. I hope you liked the voices that I did. 
I, I always struggle with whether to do Conan with an Austrian accent or not. You've heard me ask this before or say this before. Ask the musical question, should Conan the Barbarian always sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh, hell no! And the answer is, for me, yes. That is who Conan the Barbarian is. That is the Sumerian accent, just like uh, Gal Gadot's Israeli accent is what they have adopted for Themyscira, island of the Amazon. So I'm fine with that. Accents are neat. But it, I, somebody complained earlier, and I, I, I don't remember whether it was Phoenix and the Sword or whether it was the Frost Giant's daughter, but they were just like, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger voice. But that's who Conan is to me, and uh, that's who I see in my mind, and uh, I like doing that voice. And uh, who knows whether this will be the last one that I do, but it would be awfully hard for me not to do his, his accent. The Scarlet Citadel. And I find it interesting that it's the third published Conan story, and he's already King Conan in this story. That's something that surprised me when I started reading the Conan stories, that they jump all over in time. And I'm not sure why Howard would do that if he had a timeline in his head and there were certain ideas that he had that he thought would be interesting to write. So he just jumped around, jump around in time or if uh, he was just making up as he went. I know that his character Cull the Conqueror was created first. And a lot of those Cull the Conqueror stories were rejected by magazines when he sent them in. And he reworked them to be Conan stories. And so maybe that's part of it, is that the character of Cull was, was well-developed. And then, you know, in an attempt to sell these stories, he developed Conan. And Conan was the breakout character. He also created a character called Solomon Kane. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he was a... <clears throat> what was Solomon Kane? Not a pilgrim. He was a, a Puritan who had these adventures vanquishing evil in the late 16th century, early 17th century. And he, and he would, he would globetrot. He would go to Europe. He would go to Africa. And uh, I've never read a Solomon Kane story. My friend Jeff had this hardcover collection of all of Howard's Solomon Kane stuff that was made like a limited edition press because Jeff just loves Robert E. Howard and, and he, he loves the Conan mythos and has given me a couple of books of his, but he did not give me the Solomon Kane one. I take that back. He did give me the Solomon Kane one when he was moving to Germany, and it was just worth so darn much that I, I sold it. But I could go out and get some of those stories and maybe do one of those stories as well. I don't know if they speak in thee and thou. I don't know. I don't have a problem with that, but it, it might make for a much drier reading than somebody who speaks in this accent, and yet he has a very broad vocabulary and sounds like an intellectual sometimes. I, uh, I really enjoy 
performing these stories. And I know that I have at least one listener that's a huge fan of Howard. It's not Jeff, unfortunately, but maybe we can do more in the future. So one thing that I wanted to talk about after this story was that there are bits of the story that have aged less well than others. Do you see how delicately I put that? There are products of the time in which the story was written that are less acceptable now. And I, I, I didn't say unacceptable now, I said less acceptable now, because to a certain mindset, everything is unacceptable now. There are people who become so aroused by pointing out injustice or pointing out that X is no longer okay, that, that they, they, they do it for everything. I heard somebody talking about how Star Wars was racist. The 1977 Star Wars, not that episode of droids with blackface. People can find fault in anything. It's something that's just so wonderful about living today. But I would ask you to remember that Robert E. Howard is long gone, and he did not write these pieces today. He wrote them when our grandparents were toddlers, or uh, in my grandparents' case, still fairly young. And um, I, I like to look at things through that vantage point. Uh, I remember, and, and I'm going to use a racial slur here, so uh, heads up. My cousin and I got the Batman cereal from the 1940s. And they kept using the word Jap over and over and over again. And our, our sensitive 20 teen ears have told us, you know, hey, 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 come on, man. But it was like Batman and Robin using that word. And instead of, you know, saying, F this racist shit, I thought, okay, well, let's think about the audience at the time who this was made for. You know, it was post-1941. We were at war. And... Yeah, okay, Jap is a, 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 a slur, but it is really just the first syllable in Japanese. I mean, I know that people are sensitive to it. I, I may be digging myself in pretty deep here. I, I, I apologize. Let's fast forward to now. I've been listening to this podcast that Dana Carvey and David Spade do called Fly on the Wall. And it's the two of them, and they will bring on a guest. Usually, like 80% of the time, it's somebody who worked on Saturday Night Live or hosted Saturday Night Live. And they sit down with that person, and they talk about the experience. And because I love Saturday Night Live, I have really, really enjoyed listening to this podcast. And a lot of times, even if it's somebody who hosted in the 2000s, they will point out a sketch that would be considered problematic today or a sketch that they wouldn't dare show today. And something that they chat about. Like, especially in the 70s, there were sketches that were racially charged. I, do you remember that there was a Buck Henry one where he was the pervy uncle who would like take pictures of his nieces while they were pillow fighting, although he might not even have been an uncle, he called himself their uncle. 
I remember there was an Alec Baldwin one with Adam Sandler, or the Canteen Boy one, where he was a scoutmaster who wanted to cuddle, or uh, probably fondle Canteen Boy, and um, I don't think they even show that one anymore. The, the mores have really changed in just the you know, less than 50 years that Saturday Night Live has been on. And when we're talking about 90 years, well, 89, since this story was written, a lot of things have changed. We discussed this already when I did the Pigeons from Hell episode, which was also Robert E. Howard. And I feel like we discussed it when I guested on Journey Into with Big when we did The Gold Bug by Edgar Allan Poe. And in that one, there is a there's a black character who is written in a southern stereotype slang, like Negro English, with you know, and we talked to Marshall and we're just like, oh boy, are we gonna get in trouble for this? I also like Marshall the best. But I think he agrees with me in that hey, we're trying to present this as this is something from the 1800s. And I think it still has merit. But yeah, be warned, there are racially insensitive aspects to it, you know? I I get uncomfortable talking about this stuff because, you know, people that have a podcast or people that have a radio show or whatever, they use it as an excuse to say shocking things. There's no real consequences for when people say stuff. I mean, it would be nice. The Alec Jones thing would be very nice. But uh, <laughs> am I overly cynical in predicting that none of these guys are ever going to uh, face consequences for their actions? Look, I believe that there should be consequences for the things that you say. And believe me, there are times when I record something on this show and then I say to myself, oh, should I should I bleep that or should I do a retake? I'm a very empathetic person, whether you believe it or not. Uh, overly empathetic a lot of times. And uh, I don't want to offend people. I don't want to um, make people feel alienated or anything like that. You know, I, I, I still believe that we can agree to disagree in most cases. You know, even the person that says Star Wars is racist, I go, okay, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. Darth Vader is the only black character. All right. I, we can agree to disagree, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I feel that there is still a great deal of value to these stories. I, I can very much enjoy them. Although that Batman serial from the 1940s, I think I enjoyed because how bad it was. That is how we got the 60s show. Did you know that? Feel free to look it up or you could just take my word for it. That is how we got the 60s Adam West show. Is college campuses were showing those 1940s Batman and Robin serials. And young people would go and they would laugh at it at how awful it was. And uh, some producers said, hey, we could do this, but on purpose. Uh, Anyhow, 
I feel like everybody has a line of what they find acceptable and what they don't. And I talked about that a great deal in that Pigeons from Hell episode. Maybe I talked about it too much. That was the one where I got the hate mail. I'm curious what people say. I'm curious how others receive these things. I have written things that as the years go by and my personality changes or, or my attitude changes, I sort of wince. I feel like, oh, I should have uh, phrased that differently. There was a story that I wrote in 1992 where there was a gay couple that came into a bar and interrupted the story that was being told. It was like two sentences of the gay couple coming in. And I remember people reading that and being like, "Ooh," And I thought, oh, did I present that gay couple as being like aberrant? And I'm not sure if I did or not, you know, if it, if, if it was. Yeah. And as I got a little bit older, <laughs> I was more hesitant about the, the part where the gay couple comes into the story to the point where when I did a rewrite, in the early 2000s, I rephrased it. So it didn't sound like uh, I was describing the gay couple as aberrant or as distasteful. I, you know, it was just two new people came into the bar. Not sure why I told you that. That probably should be an outtake, but I'm too lazy to cut it out. Uh, I'm just saying that as the years go by, our love will never die. No, as the years go by, maybe your sensitivity changes or your feelings change, just like the cultural barometer changes. And um, I try to be less offensive or less judgmental. But sometimes a cellular peptide cake is just a cellular peptide cake. You know, saying that the bartender is Asian is just set dressing. It's not meant to be a judgment. It's just something that's there. I, I will try, though. It's possible that there are people that are upset by this story or by aspects of stories that I write. And um, that's not meant to be the case, but, you know, these things do happen. Going back to the Saturday Night Live sketches, sometimes the audacity of a sketch, sometimes them seeing what they could get away with. They had a sensor on the set that would squelch things, sometimes for stupid reasons. And the writers would resent that. And sometimes they would write sketches to see what they could get away with. And every once in a while, one of those sketches got on the air and they were like, I cannot believe that NBC let us put that on the air. But without the context of that, without knowing that they were trying to pull one over on this censor guy or the censor got a cold and went home on Thursday and they shot the show on Saturday. So it's like, hey, without the context, maybe you're just like, oh, well, these guys were just really, really hateful. Uh, for example, in 1979, they did a very, very misogynist like talk show where it was, uh, you know, talking about men's issues or whatever. And it was like four guys complaining about women or whatever might be the case. And if you see that episode by itself, 
you might say, this is, this is not cool, guys. But if you know that the, in the writer's room, they were pitching this thing and the ladies, the lady cast members said, oh, well, what if next week we did a women's talk show where, you know, four women get together to complain about men and the writers were like, oh, let's do that. And we'll write one this week and then we'll write one next week. Oh, that'll be really fun. And we'll, we, you know, we'll, we'll really dig into each other. And so that's what they did. The next week or next episode, I don't know if that it was, a, dang, I said it again. I don't know. I'm not sure that it was the next week. There was a woman talk show kind of thing. Maybe the context helps you appreciate it. Unless you're one of those people that wants to be offended. In which case, listen to this. <laughs> all right. That's all the time that we're going to spend today on this. I, I enjoy reading, narrating, performing a lot. I was just thinking today, it was raining, and I went up onto the upper deck, and I just watched the rain for a little while. I was trying to record, and then there was so much thunder that I thought, oh, you know what, I'll just go watch the rain for a little while. But I was thinking about when I was young and impressionable, somebody said to me, Rish, all the world is your stage. And I interpreted that as I am meant to work in the arts. I am meant to be an actor. I am meant to go into showbiz or whatever. Whereas another person would have interpreted that in a different way. But that's how I interpreted it. And I was thinking today, it's like, because I liked movies, because I liked storytelling, because I'd always liked doing voices and, and, and plays and that sort of thing, I interpreted those words as, you know, this is my calling, this is what I should do. But anybody else would have just taken it in a different way, or it would have just gone in one ear and out the other. I was impressionable, like I said. It sure would be nice if that were my career, if I were paid to perform these stories, to do narrations. There's a storytelling festival a few cities up from where I live, and they do it every year. I think it's in September, sometime like that. And there are a couple of these guys that that's their um, spring break, their Mardi Gras, whatever it is. They look forward to that all year round. They get to, you know, put on a hat and go per, tell stories, do tall tales, scary stories, whatever it might be in front of dozens, possibly hundreds of audience members. And I've seen a couple of them do it and they really, really love to tell these stories. And I've watched how they have a technique and a way of trying to make it seem intimate with the audience. And it's neat. It's made me think, well, I wonder if I could do that seems to be that I only do that sort of thing at funerals, but okay. Anyway, the time has come for us to part, and I hope that you take me inside your heart. And though I'm gone back whence I came, this has been the podcast that dares not speak its name. And that's it. Like I said, it was a long story, and like you noticed. So there's not a ton of things that I have to say about it, except for that if you like it, 
and you would like me to do more, please let me know. You can vote with your dollar or you can also just send me a message about what you thought of the story, what you thought of my performance. As I said, I've got a whole book full of these suckers. Good night. This is fake Sean Connery. And you can support me and the boy over at Patreon.com. Encourage us to put out more shows by donating a dollar an episode. Or more if you've got more money than cents. Special thanks to Gino the Divino Moretto for the logo he designed for this podcast. Please see it in your heart to forgive him. Theme song is the most mysterious song on the internet. If you know who sings it, then you're the only one. And that's it for the podcast that dares not speak its name, which was produced under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license. The music in the show was by Kevin MacLeod at the website incompetech.com, who released it under a Creative Commons license. I only wish he had a podcast so I could be listening to that instead. Boy, I don't, I, I can't think of anything else to say, but if I think of something, I'll insert it here. Uh, anyhow, I feel like that there can be, I almost said that there can be charming racism. What, you want an outtake after all that? All right, so uh, I was listening to that Fly on the Wall podcast, and David Spade was telling this story of uh, he got invited every 10 years or so. They do this big thing up at Paramount Studios where they invite a bunch of stars of the studio to be in a picture. And, uh, you know, it's like Paramount's 50th anniversary, Paramount's 60th anniversary. Anyway, he got invited to do Paramount's 80th anniversary, although it might have been 90th, I can't remember. So it was all of these actors, and he was talking about, like, you know, the big shot stars of Paramount. And when he got there, he asked where the bar was, and they said, oh, Mr. Spade, there's, there's no bar because... The picture is going to be taken on raised platforms up on like bleachers, that sort of thing. We would hate for somebody to fall off. And he's like, huh. And he had smuggled in these two little bottles of whiskey of Jack Daniels or something like that that he had in his socks. And so while they were setting up the picture, he got one of them out and he unscrewed it. He tried to do it surreptitiously and took a little drink and as he lowered the bottle he noticed that somebody was looking at it and it was Harrison Ford and he's like oh my gosh Harrison Ford I've been a fan of his my whole life oh my gosh and they had asked him to wear his Indiana Jones hat for the picture because that's you know the Paramount that, that's the character that he played for Paramount and uh, he's like wow I, oh my gosh he's coming toward me Indiana Jones is coming toward me and David Spade kind of tried to hide the bottle. And Harrison Ford said, I saw what was in your hand. You got another one of those? And David Spade did. He had a second bottle. And he's just like, oh my gosh, I, this is my hero. This is my idol. But at the same time, 
I'm an alcoholic. So I said, no, sorry. That's it. I, I said it was an outtake. I didn't say it was a good outtake. <laughs>